This is episode 47 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 47 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's DeNicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the communications specialist at the center. In this episode, we chat with Zena Hitz, a tutor in the Great Books program at St. John's College and author of the book Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. We discuss how the book came to be, who it's for, and why it is good to be an amateur at something. Let's sit down in the virtual chat room for this delightful conversation. Well, Zena Hitz, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for sitting down with us in this virtual interview, this virtual chat. Uh, thank you so much. It's great to be here, Ken. So tell us a little bit about how did you first get connected uh, to the DeNicola Center and with the, the staff of the center? Well, uh, I was in college as an undergrad at St. John's uh, with your distinguished director, Carter Sneed. Yeah. So I might have heard about the center through other vehicles, but I think I had it especially foremost in my mind because of my friendship with Carter. And I um, I got a notice for the fall conference um, that you guys have every year. Uh, when I first came to, I guess the summer before I came back to be a tutor at St. John's, and I had I wanted to write this essay on the value of intellectual life. So uh, I, I wrote up a little pricey. I sent it in to the conference and got a little, a little space on one of the panels. So that, that was called Freedom in Intellectual Life. I put together some slides. And uh, so that was the first version of this work that ever saw light in the world. And I still remember how much encouragement I got from that audience. I remember there were about five young women from Christendom College in the front row and and they were nodding as I was talking in a way I've never seen anyone nod while I was talking you know <laughs> and I thought I have hit some nerve here you know people are people this is resonating with people uh so I wrote up that talk and I sent it into first things they published it on their website it got picked up by a blog and uh the editor at Princeton read it about it on the blog he asked me if I wanted to write a book so I contracted a book. And then I found myself in the situation, this was a couple of years later, I was teaching full-time and I needed to uh, write this book. I was on a contract. This is not like an academic deadline where you turn it in, you know, 10 years later. <laughs> you finish it. This is more on a business type schedule. So uh, I realized I wasn't going to be able to meet it with my teaching load. And I was, I was getting too tired. So I uh, contacted Carter and asked if they would, uh, if they had space for me at the center for a semester. They offered me a generous fellowship, and that was the semester where I drafted the manuscript. So, so the center has been there from the beginning, and it was there at a crucial moment. And uh, so I could not have written this book. It's completely obvious to say I could not have written it without the help of the center. Wow. Well, that's a. Uh... That's delightful. And, and, and I know, of course, you, you mentioned this in the acknowledgments. While you were at the center, you also had the opportunity to continue to, to develop some relationships that 
bore great fruit in the in the writing, including one with uh, with Jim Hankins. I know. Oh yes, that was wonderful. So he was he was at the center of the same semester I was, and he was working on doing this wonderful work on Renaissance humanism for his uh, book that came out as Virtue Politics just this past year. And uh, I, the Renaissance is one of the areas in history I know very little about, mm. but of course it's very important for thinking about the value of the humanities. So Jim and I had lunch about every week, and uh, that man is just uh, learned and humble and brilliant, and he was very interested in my project. He was very encouraging in times when um, I wasn't really sure always exactly what I was doing and how it was going to work. So yeah, in that way too, in terms of um, the colleagues and the environment at Notre Dame, um, which was also very welcoming and, and very fun and very interesting. Uh, so it was, yeah, on the whole, I'm, I'm enormously grateful. To, I mean, I could have been more effusive in the acknowledgments if I hadn't had other people to thank. But uh, it was a, you know, it was, yeah, just a great experience for me that semester at Notre Dame. Wonderful. Well, who is your book for? Who, who were you thinking of as, as your envisioned audience while you were putting fingers on keyboard? There were two groups of people who I was thinking about. Um, one that was primary in my mind was all of the academic friends that I have from all the academic communities I've been in over the years, which is a number because I, I, I went to a few different graduate programs and I taught also in a few different places before I came back to St. John's. So I was thinking about um, the people I knew who were disaffected or discontented, who were very serious, very good people, um, who would have these crises of the kind that I once had where your work feels meaningless and you know the world's full of suffering and you're churning out scholarly articles and uh, teaching in these sort of uh, lecture hall factory classrooms and you don't feel like you're connecting with the needs of the world. So I, I was thinking about that audience, which is sort of the group in which, of which I was once a member and to some extent still am. I was also thinking about um, people of whom I know at this point many who uh, don't have a lot of formal education, um, but who love learning and who have squeezed it into their lives in whatever ways they can. So there are a number of people like that at uh, Madonna House, the community where I spent some time uh, and what I describe in the book, people who just pick up you know, the latest science on something or other and just try to piece it out on their own for the love of it. Um, I met a woman, I mentioned this in the book, but um, I was a literacy tutor in Alabama for a little bit. And I, I met this woman who had had an eighth grade education. She worked in a factory. She was in her 60s. And uh, what she loved, it turned out, she, she just stayed in literacy tutoring. She didn't want a GED, GED. She didn't want any particular goal. She loved seeing how grammar worked. She loved understanding the pieces of language and how they fit together and came apart. So uh, I think there are lots and lots and lots of people like that. And they often sell themselves short. They, they think that what they're doing is not the most, is not real intellectual life. Uh, and I wanted to uh, honor them and encourage them and uh, tell them that they are in some ways um, what it's all about. That is, I, I don't think that if, if we lost the ordinary versions of intellectual life and just had academics, I, I don't think that intellectual life would make sense anymore. Uh, it, 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 has to, it can have these high, specialized, beautiful, advanced levels, but it has to go out 
Um, it has to be lived in ordinary lives and it has to reach individual people in a variety of walks of life. So, so I wanted to communicate to people who are in that situation also. So those were my two basic people who I, sets of people who I was thinking about. And that kind of actually made me think a lot about, is there a value in being an amateur, as in truly one who does it for the love of whatever it is, versus, you know, a paid professional? Is it more pure if, if I'm doing this because I like this? Um, I, and of course, you have many, many examples of people, even great intellectuals that we know of, but we don't think of them for what they did in their day job, right? Einstein worked in a patent office, but we don't think about that at all. That just happens to be an interesting thing about him. Right. So uh, I think that the amateur is important, especially because of the way you're putting about it. It comes from the word to love um, because of the love of learning and because what I think of as being we learn for all kinds of reasons and lots of them are very important. And I think I get accused sometimes of diminishing them. I'm not diminishing them because I don't think they're important. I'm diminishing them because everyone knows they're important and they don't know that this learning for the pure love of it is also very important. And in a certain way, maybe more important because it develops us as human beings. It's part of our, uh, it gives our lives richness and depth. It makes us happier. It uh, gives us, puts us in touch with our dignity as human beings. It gives us resilience in times of trouble. There's all kinds of things it does for us just because we're doing it for the love of it. It doesn't depend on us getting the right answers. It doesn't depend on us agreeing with the experts in say how we interpret a book. It's uh, something in the activity itself of pondering and reflecting and puzzling something out and reaching for some truth that, that, that has all the value in it. So in that sense, an amateur is, in a certain way, a more authentic intellectual than uh, a certain type of academic, which I, th- I think there aren't many people who are really purely like this. Most people are kind of mixed. But if you get a lot of incentives for your academic work, and you you know, it's, as we all know, academic, the academic world is very, very status divided and status conscious. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is possible if you're in the right um, circuits to also make a certain amount of money. So there's money and status and prestige. And you can get hooked into that. And that's can turn into really why you're doing it. And an amateur is in a better situation than that person is as far as they're really living out the human dimension of the intellectual life and reaping the benefits from it that it can reap for any of us. Yeah. I I often think about that, you know, I've been a home brewer in the past and yes. love brewing beer, love the activity, obviously love, you know, what what you end up with in the end too. Beer is delicious. But I never ever was interested in becoming a professional brewer out of, out of <laughs> home brewing because I was like, I don't want to lose the love of this activity. This is truly yeah. a hobby. Yeah, no, it's it's uh it's really interesting that that's often a threat of becoming a professional is that you you lose the love of it. And sometimes it is wise to reserve your hobbies, the things you really love as as hobbies so that your work can be more drudgery-like <laughs> and, and your hobbies are really precious and beautiful and you, you, know, you relish every minute of them. There's something to be said for setting up your life that way. I think that a lot of what's happened in our broader culture is uh, we've become very professionalized and very specialized and we rely a lot on professionals and on specialists. 
And that brings us many wonderful things. It's not entirely a bad movement, but it's bad when it, it leads us not to recognize the value of just doing something for yourself. There's something satisfying about growing vegetables in your garden as opposed to buying them from the farm stand or making your own beer as opposed to buying it or making your own furniture as opposed to buying it. And, and that's, I think, even more true when you're thinking about you know, thought and reflection and pondering you know, it's it's just it's worth so much for you to do it on your own. Um, the fact that someone in a university a thousand miles away can do it, quote unquote, better. It's it, it in a way it really doesn't matter, even as much as, you know, it matters less than it does. The fact that there's a person a thousand miles away who can make great furniture much better than I can make myself. Right, right. I'm reminded you actually had a a bit in your book about the necessity of doing things with our hands occasionally to reset the inward turn that one can take when you try to rely too much on the life of the mind. Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of, of uh, manual labor. It doesn't come naturally to me. I'm very clumsy. I, I actually went to a high school. This is something I don't talk about much, but I, I went to a high school that had a history is a vocational school. So we still had, we were college prep, but we still had requirements for wood shop and metal shop and other drafting and various other kinds of industrial arts. And I always had this huge idea of the wonderful thing I was going to make. And I would start and get, just make a huge mess. And then the teacher would come in and (laughs) fix it up for me because I didn't have that, that gift of execution. I just wasn't (laughs) plugged into the physical world enough. But I, I, I think that working with one's hands is very important. And, and part of it is, I think, part of what the book is responding to. And I, and I understood this actually thanks to, I had a wonderful review by Charlie McNamara in uh, Commonweal a few weeks ago. And something he saw, which I had not seen, was that a lot of what I'm thinking about is the scale on which we live. So we, we are so distant. On the one hand, we've developed a lot of efficiency. That is, people do things really well and they get us the things that are done really well. We have access to them everywhere. But we lose something. We lose something of our connections with one another and we lose something about our own development when that happens. I think that's a lot of what working with our one's hands is about. It's, it's um, making a connection with the world around you and living in reality in a way that I think is honestly, it, it can be difficult in, in the particular times of the particular culture we live in. Yeah, yeah. The Dominicans have a motto inspired by St. Thomas Aquinas to contemplate and to give to others the fruits of one's contemplation. I feel like that's actually a key message of your book as well, that it's good and necessary to spend time in contemplation, but it must then flow out into communion with others, whether one's an academic or an amateur. Is that a fair read? It's a fair read. Uh, I think I'm, I might say something, uh, make a slight modification. I don't, I don't think Thomas would object necessarily. Um, that initial contemplation, before we transmit it to others, we often, actually we always rely on others to get to that place. So, so learning is communal in a sense from the beginning it requires others, it requires helpers, interlocutors, even if that's a dead person that wrote a book, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. which is often the only interlocutor we can find for whatever, <laughs> for whatever reason. And I also think that uh, I tried in the book to address both uh, religious audience, Christian audience, mm-hmm. as well as Jewish or Muslim, anyway, religious audiences, and also to address 
secular people who were not particularly convinced of any religion and maybe were a bit skeptical and maybe thought they would always be skeptical. I think anyone who is too hostile to religion isn't going to get too far in the book. But if if they've got a little bit of if they can bear hearing about it in yeah. an open, honest way, then they I think they enjoy the book. And I wanted to leave that way open where I think f- in a case like that, for a secular person, you're going to think of your intellectual life as always being connection with others because you're not going to have that encounter with God as truth that Augustine or Aquinas are envisaging at the pinnacle of intellectual life. So I think from their point of view, you, you know, with your friends or your teachers, work your way up to this point where you're encounter or either that or in a way, maybe all along, any encounter with truth is an encounter with God. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then, then you've got to share that with others. Um, But I think you can get a similar dynamic without, while thinking of, you're learning as being connections with other human beings. And then I think it becomes more communal all the way down, um, which is a lot of the way that we live religious inquiry too. So it, I don't think it's too distorting. Anyway, that's a little complicated, but <laughs> uh, that's that's my thought about that that wonderful slogan of the Dominicans. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember actually it was while reading Thomas for a, uh, a, a great books program that I was doing at the master's level, I was struggling with Thomas because I'd never really read him straight through. And it was about two and a half weeks into reading him that something clicked in my brain. And all yeah. of a sudden, I got it. And I saw not only how he wrote, but also what he was doing. And even in some ways, the questions he was leaving out. And I I remember that being a great, joyful moment in my own kind of intellectual development. And it was struggling with a work that, you know, unless I had done it straight through, tried and worked with it on my own, I never would have had that moment, I don't think, because I don't know that anybody can guide you to that, but they can only take you to the edge and say, you have to work on this yourself. You know, I hear this kind of story so often. Of course, I have my own set and I also have have experiences like that. And I also see it in my students regularly because we, you know, we, we, we are pretty hard on them. We don't, we leave them with their books and we help them in conversation, but we don't give them a lot of summaries or, you know, plot points or bullet points or anything like that. Um, but I think that, you know, there's this big debate I'm in the middle of right now on Twitter about whether primary or secondary sources are better for introduct- introductory students. I'm arguing for primary text. And it's just for this reason that is, there's this high entry point, you know, it's it's hard to get in the door. It looks so impossible and it can take a long time and it's not a predictable amount of time. Right. Uh, you, you know, you can't say, no one can hear your story and say, okay, so two and a half weeks, I'm going to get, a, I, the light's going to hit. It might happen in a day. Right. It might happen in a month. You can't be sure when it's going to happen, but it does happen. And I think that experience of feeling your mind work in a way that's unexpected is so liberating because then you know that you can do it, right? Yeah, then you know yeah. that um, somehow or other, in the, because it's because uh, our minds are strange and complex and unpredictable, or because the Holy Spirit's stepping in there and you know tossing stuff out to us for whatever reason, it's it's um, it's something we can do. Uh, we just have to be patient. Yeah. It- I still look back at it as a joyful moment. So, oh, yeah. no. It's so, it's in, those moments are gold. They're worth everything, I yeah, think. Yeah. Well, 
cracking your book open, you had me hooked from the very first words of the prologue, where you write, quote, Midway through the journey of my life, I found myself in the woods of eastern Ontario. Now, of course, I was immediately reminded of the Divine Comedy, which begins, uh, as Longfellow translated, Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark. Now, you share in this book your own intellectual journey. Right. Would you describe your journey as a movement from Inferno to Paradiso? <laughs> if this is Paradiso, no. <laughs> uh, I, I wouldn't describe it quite that way. I mean, I did, as I describe in the book, I did undergo a conversion. Sure. Um, although the, the darkness I'm describing is, of course, after the conversion. So it's... Conversion is a funny thing, as most of us who have undergone one, or even a reversion, or any kind of of uh, strengthening of faith. No, it's it doesn't always feel like Inferno to Parody. So it might feel like that a bit, and then you feel like there's another Inferno past that, and then, right. Right. <laughs> then you have to. So I think in my case, you know, I I really struggled, and to some extent, I still struggle to. Um, find a way to, to actually live one's faith. Uh, so um, it's, it's really not obvious um, when you have a conversion experience what it, what it means for your everyday life. Should you change your job? Should you join a community? Should you um, rethink your attitudes to marriage and family? Should you, I mean, all of these things become uh, quite difficult. And it's... Um, sort of the convert's fallacy, I think, which I fell into, I think everyone does, I don't think it's a bad thing, but you think, well, I, I've just got to do religious stuff now, you know, mm, uh, yeah, yeah. And, and then everything will be fine. And then you realize that, in fact, even within religious institutions, even within uh, religious organizations, there's nothing that's um, sparing you from that work of discernment and your own personal life of faith and your own personal life with God. So I, I wouldn't say in front of the parody. So I would say um, I was, thanks, I think, to my conversion and the, the long process that happened afterwards and my time spent in Madonna House. I think I was a, have been able to think more clearly about how to live my vocation as a teacher and as an intellectual. I think that's something that in a way I can, I can almost, I, I don't want to say it because it sounds hubristic and then rug could be pulled out from under me tomorrow. But I do feel like I've made progress in that sense. Um, I know that trying to patch together, for me, um, a world of a conventional academic world with uh, factory style teaching and scholarly work with, say, going to mass and saying your prayers and having some kind of community, I know that that doesn't work. Um, and I have been happier where in a place like where I teach now, where my teaching is more like, more evidently uh, loving service. So I have mentoring relationships with my students. I teach small classes. I get to know my students over a year. Um, I see them over four years. And uh, I find in that smaller scale on the, on the more personal level that I am actually passing on whatever intellectual habits I've developed or gifts I've been given, they're being passed to the next generation this way. And in a way which I think helps people to navigate the world um, in whatever way. So that's, that's a piece of progress that I made that I try to convey in the book. 
Um, but it's it, it's not a template uh, to be applied to anyone, and and it may stop working for me, and I'll have to figure something else out. <laughs> so so we'll see. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Well, I need to ask finally about the the patrons that you thank at the end of your book, Saint Martin de Porres and the Mother of God. Now, of all the saints, why these particular two? You know, um, I'm a bit for for a professional actually, I'm a bit of a pragmatist about saints. It's like, who does it for you? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So for me, I struggled with Marian devotion for a long time. And I was at Madonna House, which is a Marian right, center. Right. Um, and everyone there makes the consecration of Jesus through Mary, the Louis de Montfort thing. You know, I would try to read the books. I'd be like, this doesn't make any sense. I can't do something that doesn't make any sense. Books are just terrible. And then something sort of slipped, you know, and I started, yeah, I reached a certain stage of desperation, which I think is what happens to most people. And I started really praying to her and then things started to change. Uh, I made the consecration and then things really started to change. Um, so, uh, so that's, I mean, I think that's anyone with a Marian devotion could tell you some version of that story. It's, I think it's worth saying out loud for the people out there who are struggling like I was you know, you're trying to read the books and you're like, what, what is this Mary? You know, and, yeah, and, and yeah. all you've got to do is just try. It's, it's my understanding. That's how the cult of saints originated, right? It's, it, it's, um, people prayed at the graves of, uh, these holy people and stuff started to happen. So it was a pragmatic thing. It's a pragmatic thing now. Yeah. Now, St. Martin de Porres, uh, has been, uh, uh, a saint I've loved for a long time. And I think part of it is his, he's a Dominican, he's in an intellectual order, but he's the sort of humble servant of the intellectuals, right? He's just, he's held in contempt, he's looked down on, he's attacked by some of his brothers. Um, He's black, they're white, so he's a little bit on, he's on the outside, but he reaches through and ends up uh, living this extraordinary life. That's that's a bit of an intellectual explanation. I mean, I you know he's a very lovable saint, and he and he's his his holy cards have always been there. Yeah, you know when I was trying to do my work, and they've always helped. I thought so. It's uh, I I do think it matters to me that he was a Dominican and and a hum a very humble Dominican. Sure, sure. Uh, but uh, apart from that, it's it's something about his way of being that that uh, charms me. The way it happens with some saints and. Uh, that's, that's, anyway, that's the story I have. Yeah. And, uh, what are you working on now? Well, uh, I'm working on too many things. Uh, <laughs> it's just kind of the way I do things. Uh, I'm still working on a few essays connected to the book that'll appear sometime in the fall. I think, uh, the next book is about a, a very short book on, uh, which is a philosophical approach to religious life. Um, it's, I have a contract with, with Cambridge, uh, University Press about that. They solicited it as part of a series of philosopher perspectives on various things. So it'll be about, uh, it'll be an essay on faith and happiness and oh. um, how exactly it is that faith and happiness are reconciled. I mean, not not giving an explanation, <laughs> but exploring the questions of how sure. faith and happiness and suffering are reconciled within the context of looking at religious life, somewhat in my experiences, but also in film and literature and uh, memoirs and, and things like that. So that's the next thing. Can I ask one last question? And I, um, I know you wrote an essay about the intellectual life in the time of lockdown. I did. Yes. 
Can you tease us with that? Because I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. But what has been your experience during lockdown of living the intellectual life? So my experience is, and of course, this book came out, this book on the value of withdrawal and the fruits of withdrawal and solitude and being confined and all the stories about prisoners. This came out in the middle of quarantine, right, at the, right. in May. And I was in the very awkward position of being unable to think, concentrate, or read seriously. Um, I'm still struggled. I've I've made a little bit of progress at various points. I find it extreme. I find the conditions for thinking extremely difficult. Yeah. Uh, despite the fact that um, <laughs> that it, it seems like it's in conflict with uh, my argument. So I in the essay I I speculate about why that might be the case and what we might have to how we might have to respond. Um, maybe I'll just leave it like that. That's a little bit of a teaser, right. you know, click through. I don't want to tell you the ending, but click through and find out, you know, my, how I came to understand why it was so difficult to, to think in quarantine, despite the fact that withdrawal and solitude are, are, are good for thinking normally. Well, no spoiler alerts. Do click through there. Uh, the link is in the show notes. So. Well, Zena, this has been a delightful conversation. And I mean, I genuinely love the book and there's so much more, but we can't get to everything. And, and we want people to be able to read it and struggle with the text themselves, I guess. But uh, thank you so much for, for this conversation. Thanks so much, Ken. Thank everyone at the center for me. Once again, just, you know, just a, a fuse at them a little longer so that they know how much it matters to me. Thank you to Zena Hits. You'll find links to Lost in Thought and to the other reviews and essays she mentioned in the show notes. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Don't Know by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. <laughs>